Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And my guest this week is Tony Gardner, who served as U.S. Ambassador to the European Union from March 2014 until January 20, 2017, the day Donald Trump was inaugurated and the date by which he had ordered most Obama political appointees to leave their embassy posts. When Gardner arrived in Brussels four years ago, he intensified efforts begun by his predecessor, William Kennard, to conclude the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, which would have created the largest free trade area in the world. Now, not only has that concept been killed off by President Trump, but trade tensions are higher between the U.S. and EU than in decades. Due to his threats to impose U.S. tariffs on European steel and aluminum and to sanction European companies for doing business with Iran, as allowed under the nuclear agreement from which he's withdrawn. It's a big mess. And to top it off, the EU feels ignored because there's been no new ambassador confirmed in the last year and a half. That's why when European lawmakers on the Foreign Affairs Committee felt like they really needed to talk, they still called Tony Gardner. He came over from London, where he now spends most of his time, for a session in the European Parliament. And that's where I met up with him to have a chat for Channeling Brussels. What are the dynamics right now? Well, look, generally negative. I have to call it as I see it, right? Uh, we were co collaborating with the EU as we had been for 60 years. That's an important point. For 60 years, we've been working with the EU and before the European communities on a whole range of issues, from uh, climate change more recently to foreign aid humanitarian assistance to the economic agenda, which I was very heavily involved in, as you know, for, uh, the trade agreement, the digital economy. Uh, issues which are so important for high-tech companies and others, and also our data privacy, and uh, many other issues including security cooperation and energy security. And all of those issues, I will argue, not all, but nearly all of those issues, there's been a risk of serious damage, and that's the way I see it. Now, there is one area where there is still an interest in cooperating, which I think is very important, that's law enforcement and anti-terrorism, where the EU does have important assets to bring to bear in the common fight against terrorism and serious crime. So let me break down what you're saying, where you think there's one area that you think still is fruitful where ties have not been damaged. Is that literally what you're saying? Well, in some areas, there clearly has already been damaged. So on climate change, obviously, you know, the U.S. with decision to withdraw from the Paris climate change agreement has caused immediate damage. The Iran, uh, the decision to withdraw from Iran has caused or is likely to cause immediate damage, even though there's an effort by the EU to keep Iran inside the agreement. It's going to be difficult to do that. On trade, um, you know, damage hasn't yet been done in the sense that, you know, TTIP is in deep freeze. It hasn't been declared dead. Uh, and we spent a lot of time trying to negotiate the agreement, unsuccessfully, unfortunately. But there is a likelihood of damage because instead of working together, U.S. and the EU, on all the issues you can imagine, and this president has been correctly pointing his finger at some important issues we need to resolve in terms of the subsidies, in terms of the anti-dumping, in terms of the unfair trade practices and the theft of IP on all of those issues and many others. The U.S. and the EU should be working together. We have a common interest in doing that. And instead, we're now in a logic of the U.S. and the EU being in conflict because of the unilateral sanctions 
and possibly because of the secondary sanctions that may be put in place over Iran. So for all those reasons, you know, trade is also at risk. On data privacy, again, it's holding. The agreement that we signed, the Privacy Shield Agreement, is holding. There's going to be another annual review at the end of this year in the fall. Uh, but there are signs that that could possibly also uh, be at risk. Um, so on the whole, it's not a pretty picture. And I think all of that flows from the general view of this administration. The European Union isn't a credible, effective partner of the United States. And that's just mistaken in my view. Um, when you say immediate damage, I'm, I mean, there's a lot of different um, ways to interpret that. Damage because Iran may go back to enriching, or are you talking about damage to the transatlantic relationship specifically? Both. Both. You know, damage to what may happen to Middle East peace. You already saw the events of the last few days, which were entirely predictable. Um, but damage because the U.S. may, as I mentioned, impose secondary sanctions on European companies trading with Iran. Now, it's going to be very difficult for the EU to convince the Iranians that they can continue to get the benefit of the bargain, so to speak, you know, from the deal that they signed. Let's remember that the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Association, and others, and many other countries, including the United States, repeatedly found that Iran was living up to the promises that it signed up to, right, and its commitments. It's going to be very hard to convince the Iranians that you should continue to stay in this deal, even though the United States is going to impose sanctions. And even though many European companies will be scared, despite the blocking statutes that may be imposed, they'll be scared to do any business with Iran, because frankly their exposure to the U.S. market is so much greater in almost every case to the U.S. market than it is to the Iranian market. So there will be a risk if Iran decides to pull out of this agreement. The hardliners uh, are being strengthened in terms of their position domestically in Iran. So there will be a whole series of domino effects uh, in Iran and the region. Were you surprised by the fact that the European Union came out and said, we're going to stand up against the U.S.? Um, everyone thinks that in the end they will probably crumble, but for now they're making a very brave stand, aren't they? I think they're doing the right thing. You know, what they're, they're saying is, look, we have to engage with this administration. Absolutely. The United States is still, you know, the leading power in the world. Uh, the EU has to engage with Washington. At the same time, it's saying, look, we're going to engage with you, but we're going to stand up for the principles that we believe in. So when the EU says we're going to continue doing business with Iran, despite the fact that these sanctions are threatened, that's a pretty gutsy approach, even if it doesn't bear out. Uh, well, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for the reasons I mentioned before, is that European companies, many of them, will be caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, back in 1996, as you may recall, we lived through a similar situation, right, uh, because of the Cuba, Iran, and Libya sanctions. And the EU at that point put, put out its blocking statutes that basically prohibited uh, courts uh, from giving effect to EU, uh, sorry, U.S. extraterritorial legislation. Uh, the U.S. backed down, Clinton backed down, but we may now be back in that situation. But these blocking statutes are um, of limited effectiveness. Uh, it's a very strong political signal, but legally and commercially they may not have, you know, an entirely uh, positive effect. And on the steel tariffs, there's another deadline, June 1st, the yes. extension. What's going to happen? And, and is, do you feel a lot of angst from your European uh, interlocutors on, on this specific issue? And that's something where the mood was just so awful. They really felt offended, the Europeans, by this. Yes. Look, some countries 
uh, of the EU have been trying to get um, you know special deals, special waivers. Um, I think that's a very dangerous path. Uh, the EU needs to say united. It needs to send a united message to Washington. I think it's absolutely right. We won't negotiate with a gun to our head. That's not the way to negotiate. I've negotiated a lot in my life. I refuse to be bullied. I refuse to be intimidated. I refuse to have people set down conditions. Um, and I think that's generally been the message. You know, we're not going to say first we're going to give concessions and then the United States will decide whether or not to extend the exemption from June 1 onwards. Uh, so I think that's the right way to go about it. And you think the administration has put a gun to the European Union's head? Yes, I do. I do. And I think that's the wrong way to approach. Look, the EU is an ally. That's not the way you treat allies. You don't put, you don't, you know, point guns at the heads of your allies. Maybe you point guns at the heads of your enemies. But, you know, the world is a turbulent place. We've got a lot of enemies out there, real enemies, people who want us ill, you know, and who really want to undermine our democracy and who pose a true military security threat. The EU is an ally on almost all of the issues I mentioned and many others. And it's something that we tend to forget. You know, we're mixing up our allies and our enemies. Um, I want to quickly touch on Gaza. Uh, you said completely predictable. Um, this move obviously is something every other administration decided not to do, was pressured to do, but decided against it. Um, is there any is there any justification for, for what is done? I mean, you know the pressures of Washington. Um, what justification was there for doing it now, being warned that the bloodshed that we have seen would, would happen? Luckily, I have not had to deal with this issue. And luckily, I've never had to deal with these thorny issues of Middle East peace. Look, there's no excuse for violence uh, that we saw. Uh, and it, it goes without saying that Israel is entitled to live securely without fear within its borders. Full stop. I mean, that is clear. The Obama administration was a friend of Israel. The United States is a friend of Israel. That will never change. I believe, and I share the view of the Obama administration, that the move to Jerusalem was not the right thing to do, that that was an issue that is properly considered to be part of a wider peace agreement, rather than to decide unilaterally. Um, but as I said, I've, I'm not, uh, I, luckily I've not had to deal with these issues personally. Let's talk about the reason that people are still asking you what to do, and that's because there hasn't been an ambassador here for a, for a year and a half. You're the last guy they knew. Um, so uh, has it been a mistake or has it been a deliberate signal sent by the Trump administration of how he views the European Union that nobody's been, nobody's been named here? And what do you think about Gordon Sunderland, the guy that's uh, expected to take your place? I wish him well. Honestly, I wish him well. Uh, I've spoken to him. I think he uh, clearly wants to do a good job. He's committed to doing a good job, and I wish him well. And, um, you know, the delay, let's remember there have been delays in the past. You know, it took me a long time to get to post as well. It took me about nine months to get to post after I was named, more or less. And so this has been a little bit longer than usual, but I think it's pretty much, you know, par for the course. Um, and this is a really important post. Uh, I said this to him. He knows it, of course. A very detailed set of issues will be on the plate. A very difficult time in U.S.-EU relations. It will require a great deal of tact uh, and diplomacy, and I'm sure he'll do well. I wish him well. He is not a man with a lot of foreign policy experience. Um, is, was he a surprising choice? 
You know, I really don't have a view about that. I uh, don't know him. I've spoken to him. Um, I, I don't have a view. He, he is well aware uh, of how important this is. Um, he's well aware of the delicacy of some of the issues we have on the table. And he's, I'm sure he's going to learn quickly. When, when Bill Kennard came and then you, you were still trying to repair relations from, from um, the uh, foreign policy, you know, hurt that had happened before you. Um, and you made a lot of progress. I mean, I know when Ambassador Kennard came, they weren't used to a U.S. ambassador coming to this building in particular. And, um, and they really liked it that you guys came over here and talked to them all the time, that you were an open door. Uh, now, what are MEPs saying? Um, they, they don't know what to think about this administration. There's a lot of concern, no doubt about it. Look, I mean, this is an important institution. I did come here often, uh, just like my predecessors did. Bill Kennard was often a vis you know, frequent visitor to the um, uh, European Parliament in Strasbourg and in Brussels. I was here seven times. I actually went to Strasbourg seven times. I was here in Brussels many, many times. This, this institution plays a critical role on many of the issues that are important for the United States. You mentioned one of them, data privacy and the trust issue, which was absolutely top of the agenda for us. We had to reestablish trust after a very bumpy period. And it's good you mention that because, you know, this is not the first time we've had um, turbulent relations. You know, we should be fair. Um, I think we now face particularly turbulent relations, but we faced a tough time during Snowden. We faced a tough time during the Iraq war. We faced tough times beforehand, and we overcame all of them, right? Because the importance of the relationship dominates any particular issues uh, of the day. What are the kind of things that you've been hearing from, from the MEPs and the other European, your other European friends? Do they somehow desperately want you to be able to interpret what the administration is doing and what they're going to do next, just grasping at straws? Well, they know I'm not capable of interpreting this administration. And in fact, there are very few people who are because it has been rather erratic in terms of the policies that have been pursued. I think it's important to stay positive, right? Uh, it's important to say, okay, there are, the, the, there are difficulties, but where can we find a way to actually work together with this administration in ways that matter? And one of them is law enforcement. Tell me what you mean by that. Um, well, look. Law enforcement remains uh, an issue of enormous importance for both sides, um, and things are happening on both sides of the Atlantic which are um, new and significant. The United States uh, passed recently uh, legislation called the Cloud Act that allows, it grants the authorities, the Department of Justice, to sign what are called executive agreements with foreign governments to facilitate the exchange of e-evidence, electronic evidence that is stored outside the borders of the United States, right? The first one is likely to be an agreement between the United States and the UK, which would allow, for example, uh, the UK services, um, government agencies, to directly request from a service provider, let's say an internet service provider, to hand over electronic evidence stored in the United States that relates to UK citizens and UK crimes without going through a very cumbersome procedure of the so-called MLATs, the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties, that take a long time, six, nine months, or perhaps more. This has held up terrorism investigations, hasn't it? Precisely. So this is, this is a real issue of interest to a lot of people, right? We cannot wait six, nine months for evidence to be turned over when uh, we need to react within days or weeks. So this is important. The idea is that this agreement now will be replicated uh, with other allies. So it could be Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and so on. Now the, the issue is 
Will the United States now sign an agreement with the European Union or will it sign uh, individual agreements with certain member states of the EU? This is very actual because the EU has passed, well it's not passed, is, is put forward a proposal for an e-evidence regulation that does much of the same thing that basically says uh, a member state government agency can request uh, electronic evidence to be handed over uh, from another member state, so outside its borders, or from a third country in certain instances. If those countries meet certain basic thresholds of human rights and judicial scrutiny uh, and so forth, just as the Cloud Act does. So this is a good example. What I'm saying, this is a good example. The U.S. and the EU are trying to do the same thing. Let's get together and try to make sure that those two pieces of legislation are compatible, right, that they work together. And in my view, this would be a good, a good way for the U.S. and the EU to sign an agreement uh, on a bilateral basis rather than have the U.S. pick out individual member states. They often find advantage in doing that. They can negotiate other things with them, well, uh, including intelligence sharing and things like that. There's no doubt that there are some interesting political and legal uh, challenges uh, relating to an agreement between the United States and the European Union. The Commission believes, I think correctly, that it, is, uh, it has the power to enter into a U.S.-EU agreement most of the member states have given it their full support, given the Commission their full support to negotiate on behalf of the 28, soon to be 27, when the UK leaves. I think the Department of Justice should be interested in having an agreement with the EU for a whole bunch of reasons that, uh, well, some are very technical because there are some EU restrictions on the ability to hand over evidence that are, are, are in EU legislation that member states cannot get rid of by themselves. Furthermore, some of the member states may decide to block uh, the ability of an agreement one by one bilaterally with individual member states because they believe they'll be left out. Uh, because w which has happened before. You know, when I was at Post, we had a number of very significant U.S.-EU agreements on law enforcement, including the so-called Umbrella uh, Data Privacy Protection Agreement that allowed for the transfer of data between law enforcement authorities in the EU and the United States. And there are other precedents for U.S.-EU agreements of this kind. All right, well, if you were to look, look ahead in the next uh, couple of months, uh, presuming your, your successor comes then, what are the things he really needs to look toward? Because you had Ambassador Kennard, same administration, no hostility, to, to guide you through and say, go to this office first, go to this office first, take up this issue first. If Ambassador Sunland is confirmed and he comes here, um, you've got the tariff, the steel tariff, I mean, June 1st could be another blow up, we don't know. Um, what should he do first and what are your biggest worries? Ooh, what a question. I think, look, the biggest general message that I have been repeating again and again is that Washington really needs to understand that the EU is not only relevant, but it has a lot of tools that it can put to our joint disposal, at our joint disposal, to address a lot of the challenges we care about. Changes of policy in administration are normal, right? But I think that 
you know, what I felt as an ambassador here is that I was working uh, very much within a bipartisan framework. You know, for 60 years, both Republicans and Democrats more or less had pursued a similar agenda with the EU. I didn't feel I was representing just Democrats, you know, one party. I was working on behalf of both parties and American business. American business also understands the importance of the EU, the importance of getting a deal done, making sure exports are not hindered here. So much is at stake, and to be entering into a logic of you know tit-for-tat retaliatory sanctions doesn't make any sense. That's my biggest message. The second message is, you know, and it's obvious, the parliament here does matter. It does matter on you know the issues I mentioned. Data privacy is one of them. Trade is another. But there are lots of others. You know, sanctions was an important one. And this is an, this is an important issue, you know, despite differences of opinion. I realized very quickly, meeting with almost all of the political groups in the European Parliament, that there were inevitably areas where we did agree and where we could work. I'll give you an example. With the Greens in the Parliament, with whom I met frequently, yes, there were some big differences of opinion, particularly on trade. They were very critical of the United States on trade, on data privacy, and a few other things. Despite those disagreements, we saw eye to eye on a lot of things, on a lot of things. Sanctions against Russia, measures should be taken about the invasion right, of, of Ukraine, uh, on climate change, and that's going to be a more difficult discussion now, obviously, but on climate change back then, we had a lot of things to agree on. And on our common agenda regarding anti-corruption, good governance, and human rights around the world. So just a message saying, I'm a believer, you speak to those who uh, disagree with you, who are critical of you, because often there are areas where you can find agreement. Reach out. Look, there's going to be a lot of criticism of this administration, so he will have to, and he'll, I'm sure he'll do this very, very well, he will try to be a bridge between the institutions here and back in Washington. And I think t with the help of a fantastic mission, 180 people here, the U.S. mission to the EU, of extremely capable, uh, dedicated um, civil servants, we'll also have a pedagogical exercise back home to uh, explain to the skeptics, of which there are quite a few, uh, that the EU matters. The EU matters. It's not a dysfunctional... Uh, you know, organization that can't deliver. Because I saw it can deliver. Sometimes late, fine. Sure, it has a bureaucracy, so do we, by the way. But it can deliver. Look at what we did on sanctions together. There were so many skeptics who said... Just talking no, about Russia sanctions Russia over Crimea. Sanctions, uh, Russia sanctions over Crimea. There were a lot of skeptics saying there's no way we will be able to agree and to roll over repeatedly very deep, biting sanctions against Russia. And we did it. And we did it. It took a lot of time. There were a lot of skeptics saying there's no way we're going to be able to negotiate a privacy shield agreement and try to bridge the differences between our two data privacy regimes, right? We did it. And there are a lot of other examples. So I would say work with the skeptics back home and tell them the EU matters. Not just the member states, the EU does. That was Tony Gardner, the last ambassador the U.S. has had to the European Union. But as we discussed, Gordon Sondland, a hotel magnate from Oregon, has been nominated to the post, and at the moment it seems he won't have trouble getting confirmed on the Hill. But that's all TBD for now. And that's also all my time for now. Thanks so much to Ambassador Gardner for sharing his views. Thanks to the Atlantic Council, as always, for sponsoring Tamiang Brussels. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. 
I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.